and welcome to Lifting the Lid. Today I'm speaking with marine biologist Catherine Logan. Kat's research work on incredible sea life such as whale sharks and manta rays has taken her all over the world, from the Maldives to Mozambique to Indonesia and beyond. Brought up in Oman, she's since lived and worked in seven countries and shows no signs of stopping. I have to say that we recorded this pre-corona and Kat is currently on lockdown staying safe in Australia, but she will be back travelling very soon. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. Kat, welcome to Lifting the Lid. It's so nice to be talking with you. Oh, thanks so much. It's nice to be here. I just want to get straight in here. What is a marine biologist exactly and what do they do? So marine biology is the scientific study of organisms that live in salt water. Um, but it's quite a brief description for a very general term. So anything that's in the oceans. So bathymetry of the oceans, you could do deep sea biology, looking at critters that live on um, underwater vents. You could be looking at plankton. You could be looking at ocean currents. You could be looking um, at like limpets that live on the coast along Newcastle. You could be looking at the biggest fish in the ocean. You could be looking at whale sharks. You could be looking at behavior of whales. There's just Anything that's in the sea is what you could be studying. Amazing. So being a marine biologist yourself, that's obviously taken you to live and work in amazing places like Mozambique, the Maldives, Indonesia. Can you share a couple of memorable moments when you got up close and personal with some ocean creatures? So one of my favorite moments that really got me hooked on the oceans was when we lived in Oman and we went on a family diving trip. So my mum, my dad, my brother, myself, and a few other tourists that were out on the boat. Um, and we were looking just to like a really casual dive along a little coral reef. And we were coming up from the dive and there was myself and my brother and our dive guide. And we'd formed a little triangle. So I was looking at the two of them. And all of a sudden this massive dark shape just appeared out of the water behind them. And the poor dive guide could see me and could see my eyes just getting like bigger and bigger. Had no idea what was going on because this thing was coming from behind them. So he just like grabbed hold of me as this massive whale shark just swam right over the top of us. Um, I, I think I probably stopped breathing for about two minutes because I just had no idea what this huge creature was. So we came, finished the dive and came up to the surface. We were right at the end anyway. And where me and my brother are like yelling, shark, shark, everybody get in the water. <laughs> and my parents are like, get out of the water, don't be ridiculous. Um, so it took us a minute to explain that it was a whale shark and it was friendly. And it was, like, it was still a juvenile that was probably about nine meters long, but still bigger than the boat we were out on. And we just swam around our boat for about an hour. We were on the surface interval waiting to go in for the second dive. And we just snorkeled with it for like an hour. It was, am it was amazing. And I was just thinking, this is what oh, I can get paid to do this for my life. How great is that? That is absolutely amazing. I remember swimming with whale sharks in West Australia. And it's that thing where, I mean, obviously 
with you that was completely a surprise um but yeah when you go out on the trip and they're just like yeah yeah jump in the just jump in like it's gonna come along here in two seconds and you just kind of peer into the water waiting to see it yeah and then this giant shape just appears out of nowhere and they're silent it's like a giant bus that makes no noise just swimming past you like it just appears out of nowhere and disappears and you're like oh yeah okay that just happened sure (laughs) I do absolutely love whale sharks. I'm also especially fond of mantas and squids, actually. Uh, What's your favourite sea critter, would you say? I have always really loved seeing turtles in the water or on land they're a bit slower, but in the water they're just, they all have these little personalities and like some of them are very friendly and they'll come right up and kind of join your dive and wonder what's going on. And then other ones you see on the reef and they're like really grumpy and they just want to nap or they're just feeding on the rocks and they don't want to be involved with you. They're like, I'm just not having a buffet dinner on the reef. Leave me alone. Um, So I've always really loved seeing different turtles on the reefs. And it's great because you can actually look at the scales on the sides of their heads to ID them to individuals. So when we go on snorkel trips with guests and we're guiding them you can point out and be like oh that's like steve the turtle and that's brian over there so it's a really nice way to kind of get to know little personalities of the turtles lush yeah i do love a tail so cute and also when you're seeing them kind of swim through like really like kind of treacherous waters and stuff and they just look so valiant yeah and they're just just like like, gliding through don't mind me like oh so cute Um, when did you decide you wanted to be a marine biologist and what kind of inspired you in the beginning I was incredibly lucky I was born into a family um, who love being in the oceans and love being at the beach so we always from when I was little were out snorkeling on coral reefs we lived in Oman from when I was teeny tiny so we had some really beautiful coral reefs and there's sharks and there's rays and there's turtles and there's whale sharks so kind of was had like a plethora of things on my doorstep to get to go out and see um and my dad was a diver so he got myself and my brother into scuba diving and I just was thinking you know if I can make this into a a job really and get paid to do it and also in a way to you know work in conservation and protect the things that you love to see so instead of I worked in the dive industry for for a little bit and then I thought actually I want to do move this further into a more scientific career I've always loved sciences they were always my best subjects in school so I thought yeah if I can do degree in marine biology and get a proper job one day um that would be the way to go amazing so yeah you obviously you know you've mentioned living in Oman but you moved to Greece when you were about two weeks old right and then yeah. lived in Oman from like two two years two old years, yeah so I mean that's a fascinating life that you've led from such a young age and like what has it kind of been like living in these different cultures from such a young age as well so I always used to refer to myself and my friends as expat brats because you know living in Oman it was a great lifestyle there's where it's all tax-free all your parents have company cars and the houses are really nice and there's swimming pools and hotels you get to stay at um but now that I'm older I kind of know that it's really referred to more as like being a third culture kid So that's people who are from one culture, but grow up in different cultures or in either one different culture or two or three different cultures. Uh, And I know that it can it can be very difficult for people, especially people who've grown up with their parents in the military. They move every like two to three years so they can find it really difficult. I think we were really lucky that we got to Oman and it's 
it's a beautiful country. We were really lucky to stay. We had a really nice little close-knit family group. We had really good friends that were there for, for a really long time. Uh, some of them still live out there kind of 20, 30 years later. Um, so yeah, so for me living there, if it's all you've ever known, it never seemed like an unusual way to grow up. So it's only really since we've met other people in other cultures that I'm like, oh, actually going to the beach every day and snorkeling every weekend isn't something that everybody gets a chance to do. And we were, yeah, just really lucky that my parents were able to move out there and they really loved being there. So I yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah. Amazing. What about, so growing up in Oman, I mean, I remember you telling me some stories about camel spiders and some terrifying encounters that have kind of put me off ever going there. No. <laughs> um, how was it kind of growing up in the Middle East? I, I loved it. Oman is a very safe country. So you get some very extremes in the Middle East. You know, you have Dubai where you can wear whatever you want. You can kind of do whatever you want. There's loads of money. It's very glitzy. Or you have um, countries where the, the rules are a bit more severe and women can't go out on their own. But Oman's very kind of middle of the road. So the Omani women tend to wear more covered up clothing, but you can still go out in jeans and t-shirts and nobody's kind of that but I mean it's still clothes that I would wear around in the UK um and the Omani people are really friendly really lovely people they would help you out if you broke down on the side of the road uh, if you go out of town camping anywhere if you pass through villages everybody's really friendly they want to invite you in for cups of tea there's only so much tea you can drink but it's yeah it's great and it's a really natural country you've got the mountains you've got the desert you've got camel spiders and a few snakes here and there um but you also get like mountain goats and there's whales and there's dolphins it's a very natural friendly country and i i really enjoyed it i thought it was a really beautiful place to grow up we were really yeah really blessed to have been there i think what was it like kind of moving back to the UK if, like years after? Did you find it quite a culture shock? Yeah, I did. I really struggled to start with. Um, I really struggled to make friends. I moved from having, you know, grown up in one place, having friends that had been there for years and years to somewhere we used to come to on summer holidays. Um, and the school that I went to was an all girls school, it was a private all girls school. Everybody's quite fancy. And I just didn't get like any of the cultural references, hadn't watched any of the TV shows, didn't get what hair straighteners were, wasn't sure what you needed concealer for, just didn't, loads of things I didn't get to start with. Um, and that first year we did a lot of, my dad and my brother were still out in Oman. So every school holiday in the UK, my mum and I were like, right, what's the first day we can be on a flight straight back to Oman for this holiday? So we did a lot of flying back and forth. So I'd struggle to make friends because I wasn't in the country during holidays to kind of do things. But once we kind of moved back full time, I did start to make friends at school and it did get better. And I went out and found things in the UK that I enjoyed doing more. So I love visiting castles and things, which if you're up in Northumberland, you like falling over them, they're everywhere. Uh, and the coastlines up here are really beautiful. So I did find things that I loved about the UK, but it took me a little while. Yeah. What age were you when you first moved back and had those kind of problems? I moved back when I was 12 going on 13. So I moved back to just start um, just before going into GCSE years. So I had my four years of like GCSEs and A-levels before I went to uni. So if you live overseas, when you come back, if you want to go to a UK uni, even if you're classed as a UK citizen, you don't automatically get student loans and you might have to pay foreign student fees. Oh, so you have okay. to be in a UK school system for so long 
before you can get the, the options to have those. So like a lot of kids that are expats come back and go to boarding schools for their exam years so that you can get into the university, even though you've been doing a British curriculum yeah. throughout your school years, just to like get into the unis without having to pay ridiculous fees. So. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I can imagine that would be such a culture shock though, especially at that age, because yeah, it's hard enough anyways. Yeah. Being like 12, 13 and being like, I don't know what's going on. And feeling like everyone else around you is really grown up and you're not. Yeah, and that's also, how I felt in school anyway at that yeah, age. I went from a school in Oman where there was like 20 to 30 kids maximum for your whole year and then you move to the UK and it's like, there's 35 kids just in your class and there's six classes in your year. And I was like, everybody looks the same. I don't know anybody. Like it was, who's actually in my year in this school? It was, yeah, it was nuts. It took me a little while, but yeah, I got there stressful. in the end. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, the sea is obviously your passion. You also surf. We've caught some of our best waves together. Ah, so good. Well, maybe that's not quite true actually since you're <laughs> powering ahead with your uh, amazing surf. Um, and obviously we sea swim and you know, you obviously like supping and basically anything possible to be in the water and um, what does being in the water actually mean to you so the sea has always been a place of fascination for me so I like to know what's going on under the waves I like to be in the sea on the sea near the sea um, when I moved back to the UK from the Maldives in 2017 I'd been spending you know three to four hours a day on coral reefs in the ocean swimming diving snorkeling so when I first came back and it was January and the sea's freezing and the visibility is terrible, there's no diving going on, you can't get in for a snorkel. I really struggled um, with that. And also because from my house, you can actually see the sea. So every day I open the curtains and I'm like, oh, just want to be in the ocean again. Um, so I took up surfing, mostly kind of like for myself and for my mental health. So just to think, you know, there's other ways that you can get into the ocean and enjoy the ocean without it needing to be specifically diving. Um, and we found Yonder Surf School and I've absolutely loved it. So you can get in the sea every single day if you want to, even if there's no waves, you can do paddle practice. You can have sea swimming with or without a wetsuit on, depending on how brave you're feeling. So for me, the sea you know, it's something that's connected my whole life, wherever I've been, generally whatever country I've been in, it's been coastal. Uh, anywhere you go, you can jump in the sea as long as it's not crashing in, beast from the east waves. Yeah, I just think for me, the sea is a safe place. It's a happy place. It's a place that holds a lot of really good memories for me. Yeah, I think um, it's also very good at putting things in perspective. I find that if you're having a stressful time or something big is going on in your life, like actually going and seeing the sea and how giant it is looking out at the horizon, even not even just being in it, like it just puts in perspective, like your life in comparison to the life of everything that's in the sea. Do yeah. you know what I mean? And I think as well, being in and going swimming and going surfing, the sea can be really powerful, but it can also make you feel really powerful. So if you think you can paddle through those waves and you can use the power of those waves to get up and go surfing, or you can go jumping over waves if you're going in for a swim, it brings back a bit of clarity into your day that you can be a stronger person than you might originally think you are at the start of the day. 100%, I love that. Um, what is your scariest ocean experience? Oh, I love this question. Um, <laughs> So when I was working in Mozambique, myself and my colleague Kate that I was working with, we went out for a dive with two resort guests and the the reefs in Mozambique are quite deep. They're about 30 meters down. So you have to deflate everything that you're wearing, all your jacket and everything. 
and then just drop off the boat and kind of shoot down to the bottom of the sea because the currents can be really strong. And if you miss the reef, then you're just kind of out the reef in open water. You've got to come back up on your own. You've missed the dive. So the couple we were taking out diving with us, she had some ear problems. So she needed to come down to the reef a little bit slower than the rest of us. So we set it up where I would drop down to the bottom with a line up to the surface with a float on. And then the other three would just like casually follow me down at their own pace. So we did that. I shot down to the bottom and about three meters above the reef, I hit this wall of really thick, gloopy algae that was just hanging right on top of the reef. And I was like, okay, this is going to be a really boring dive. It's going to be really thick. We're going to have to stick really close together. So I'm sitting down next to the reef thinking, I don't know if they're going to want to do this when they get down here. And I kind of turned my head a little bit and the shadow of this bull shark just swims right past me through the gloom of this algae. And I was like, oh, that's a real, that's a real big shark right there. And I'm the only one down here. So then I kind of just flattened myself onto the reef. Um, and I, I love sharks. I love diving with sharks. I, they're really, really interesting animals. And I think it probably was just cruising past to see what I was, but we get a lot of sport fishing on the reefs we were diving. So the sharks can be quite aggressive. And I was like, oh, I just can't actually see it in the gloom, but because it's a better predator than me, it definitely knows where I am. Oh God. Anyway, the other three made it down to the reef and I was like, shall we abort? Shall we head straight back to the surface? That would be great. So we all agreed that, you know, the algae was too thick. It was going to be a rubbish dive. And when we got back on the boat, they admitted that they had seen the shark swim past me and watched my bubble stop for about a minute and a half as I just flattened myself down onto the reef. So yeah, that was pretty pretty creepy just because if it had been clear water I'd have been delighted to have seen a shark that close up but because it was so gloomy it was like being on like a spooky Halloween dive with something oh big God. swimming past oh yeah it gave me the right heebie-jeebies how big do you think it was I mean I would say it was probably a good three meters oh, Christ. but they're just they're really like chunky sharks as well it can be so aggressive. I do have a yeah. photo of just the, uh, it's just like a green photo and it looks like someone has dr- like drawn in the outline of a shark in this photo and I was like oh it's great I'll put that on my uh, put that on Facebook later <laughs> oh my god um obviously you've done a lot of solo travel uh of your lifetime so far which is obviously something that takes quite a lot of guts as well can you tell me some of the places that you've been that kind of stand out and also where you are headed in the future yeah so I've done a lot of travel as I've been growing up. My parents are very keen to get around the world and see different places. Um, I've done a lot of travel to Southeast Asia. Uh, We've been to Africa, safari holidays with my family. And then also a lot of coming back to the UK for summer holidays, Um, you know, just to get a bit of rain, a bit of fog, try those things out. Um, So for me, hopping on a flight isn't really as daunting as I think a lot of people find it. So... I mean, I did my first solo trip when I was 13. I flew across from the UK to America to go and stay with a friend for summer holidays. So I kind of classed that as my first little solo flight. Um, And I was actually furious because I was classed as an underage minor. So I had to go in like a company through the airport and with all the little kids. And I was like, I don't need to do this. I can go in duty free and wander around and look at all the bits of snacks and things you can buy but they were like no come and sit in the kids center and play on the playstation I was like oh this is rubbish um, and so now 
now I've been to about 14 countries on my own. Um, and I really love solo travel. You know, I've moved to different countries for work on my own and made friends when I got there. I've traveled, um, did the travel to the Azores Islands on my own, hitchhiked while I was there and made friends with some tour guides and had a really great holiday with them. Um, I went on my own around Southeast Asia, so Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and met some really lovely people while I was doing that. There's, I think there's quite a lot of people out solo traveling these days. So I kind of think, you know, people think it is more daunting than it probably actually is. You just make make friends as you go. What is the most dangerous or daunting moment you've had on the road though? Because I can imagine that, unfortunately being women, we do, we are kind of in a bit more of a, like a risky situation sometimes. Yeah, I'd say it's always good to be aware of your surroundings. Like even if you're at home and you're out late at night, just kind of be aware of of things around you. I had, um, I was traveling with a friend in Tunisia years and years ago. We went on a, a last minute impromptu holiday out of season while it was quiet. Um, and you just get, you got followed there and that was really unsettling. So everywhere we went, you you knew people were following you and people would be following you like on the opposite side of the road and you would stop to look at something and they would stop on the other side of the road and you would start again. And that was really creepy and just, and also just really irritating when you're like, oh, I just want to like walk down the road and get an ice cream, like stop, but I'm not doing anything of any interest, leave me alone. But we did get followed. We went out of town one day along the coast and we got followed by a couple of just teenage boys and they just kept getting like a little bit closer and a little bit closer and there wasn't really anyone else around and there weren't any like cafes or houses or anything we could nip into. And luckily for us, stroke of magic, a police car drove past and so we flagged them down and they chased down these teenage kids who, when you don't know whether they are actually up to anything or if they're just mucking about or whether they're practicing their stalking skills for later in life. Um, but yeah, the police chased them down and to put them in the police car and apologize to us for their actions. Uh, so I don't know what happened to them after that, but hopefully they just got a solid telling off. Yeah, fingers but, crossed. Yeah, things like that can be a bit, yeah, just a bit creepy. You've just got to be a bit more, bit more aware in different places, but... Most places I've been to, Touchwood, I've been really lucky um, that no, I've never really had too much hassle. And whether that's just because I am like watching my surroundings and if there's situations I don't like, I kind of try and go somewhere else or go into a cafe or stick near if there's any local women around, stand closer to them. But yeah, so far, so good. Yeah. Nice. Uh, have you got any helpful tips, especially for women traveling solo? Obviously, there's the kind of, you know, be aware of your surroundings and things like that but yeah I would think if you're if you're thinking of traveling solo as a woman maybe just like you know start small at home take yourself out for days at home you know act as a tour guide in your own city you can put yourself out as like a tour guide on a Saturday afternoon do some free tours around city centers get used to talking to people that are on holiday in your city I mean people travel all over the world everywhere so even if you just think like we live in Newcastle, take yourself on a day trip on your own to York and just wander around on your own. You know, it might not seem like a big thing to do, but if you get used to trusting yourself and trusting your instincts, um, it doesn't have to be like a long haul flight. Maybe just go to Paris for a weekend by yourself, you know, start small and then do longer trips and bigger trips once you get comfortable with just spending time on your own. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Definitely. I think when I went to Morocco a couple of years ago now, and I think that was kind of the first proper solo travel in an area that I wasn't that wasn't Europe or something something that was a bit different culturally for me and yeah I think it's that like doing the research before you go kind of knowing you know knowing what to be expecting like of the culture maybe connecting with you know there's so many Facebook groups and stuff like travel groups for women as well women groups the loads of them make friends yeah make friends if you're going somewhere look up put a little message and say I'm traveling to Morocco or Cambodia or somewhere and meet there's always expats that are living there there's really friendly locals when you get there or just I mean even if you just stay in dorm rooms I've met some really lovely helpful people that I've then done day trips and things staying in mixed dorms and staying in female only dorms so people are there's a lot of solo people out there who are happy to to make friends as they go and join you know you get cheaper rates and things if you join in groups from your hostels for tours and things so yeah I think just make friends wherever you go try to yes definitely um just going back to you know marine biology have you observed any signs of climate change in your study of ocean life over the years i'm assuming that answer is yes a lot i yeah. can imagine <laughs> yes, we have. so when i was working in the maldives in 2016 um there was a massive global coral bleaching event so you probably saw it on the news about the great barrier reef being bleached out 90 percent coral reef loss but it did, it was like a global event. So it hit the, you know, the barrier reef badly, but it also traveled around the world. And when we were working in the Maldives, we just, we had a Facebook group for all the marine biologists that work on different islands because we can't get together for a coffee. So it's got to be online. And we just watched the bleaching come like down through the Maldives. So, and the corals bleached, the sea anemones bleached out, the giant clams bleached out, things that I'd never seen bleached just like everything that could bleach on the reef absolutely bleached out and we were seeing bleaching not just right up in the surface waters where it was the hottest it was traveling down the like walls of the reef as well so we were down on dives at like 20 meters and there were bits of coral down there that had bleached out it was just it was massive um and i think you're starting to see events like that happening more frequently and on a bigger scale and just reefs don't have the time to recover so it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be something that continues to affect reefs. I mean, as climate change goes and we see the amount of ice water that's going to melt, that's going on up in the Arctic and the Antarctic, and that's going to affect sea level rises. And it's just, yeah, it's a bit of a mess mm-hmm. for climate change. What is the sort of layman's term definition of bleaching? For anyone so, who isn't familiar. For anyone that hasn't seen it on the news or heard about it before, the corals have polyps that are like the coral animals so you've got your coral skeleton and then you've got your coral polyps that are the animal that make up the coral and within the skin of the coral polyps you have a zoanthelly algae and that's what gives corals these really beautiful colors when you're out for a snorkel it's this algae that's giving the corals these colors and when the sea temperature gets too hot the coral polyps get quite stressed out so they kind of like chuck out all the this algae that's living in them because they get a bit stressed they don't want to have to keep sharing their space they're like just taken off like a hot jumper on a hot day um but unfortunately for them the algae actually gives them 40 percent of their energy so then the corals get more stressed out because they don't have as much energy their coral polyps aren't able to survive and over time the coral polyps will die but if the sea temperature cools down quick enough, the coral polyps are able to take this algae back into them and then they survive and they survive the coral bleaching. But because the events are lasting 
longer and the seawaters are getting hotter, the corals aren't able to recover the algae as, as quickly and then the corals are dying. They're not able, you know, they grow so slowly they're not able to recover and cover the same area as they would have done. Um, it just takes takes them too long. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, I guess all we can all try and do is keep doing our bit with regards to you know our carbon footprint and our plastics and all the usual yeah and I think it's one of those things where everybody can do something little it doesn't need to be you know a massive overhaul you don't need to have solar panels put on your house you don't need to start up your own recycling firm you can do lots of just like little things in your day-to-day and if everybody does two or three very small things then it does have a global impact yeah, definitely. I think things like offsetting flights and stuff is becoming a lot more prominent and something that, you know, there's a lot of options now for people, you know, because people do have to travel, you know, it's, it's difficult because, you know, you can say travel as little as possible, but yeah. travel is also really important because that's how we can have empathy and yeah, connect, and how with, you other connect with people and, around the world. Yeah, exactly. And not everybody has, you know, the, the liberty of having enough time to travel somewhere on the train or by boat or, you know, do slow travel on a camel across the desert. You know, sometimes you do, you've got limited time if you want to visit somewhere else um, or you need to go for work or you've got a family emergency and you have to travel. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure on people to, to really change the way that we're living and the way that we travel. And if you have, you know, the ability to travel a bit slower or go overland or, you know, go on a bus rather than hiring your own driver, then yeah, great. But I think it's important, especially these days and ages where everybody seems to be becoming a bit more radical to definitely connect with other people around the world and travel's a really great way to be able to do that. 100%. And also, you know, like the amount of amazing wildlife that you've encountered on your tra- travel, you know, if everyone can see some of that then they can connect a lot more with actually what they're doing at home and think actually I'm not going to buy that because I don't actually need that and that's going to you know up my carbon footprint or that's going to be damaging to the environment in some way and I've seen for myself yeah I've experienced that beauty for myself or places like, like Asia like I was in Borneo and I hadn't realized the scale of like the palm oil plantations and I flew across the island to go from one nature reserve to a different nature reserve and in between it's just mile after mile after mile of palm oils just just fields and fields full of palm trees that are just being used for palm oil and you think this used to be a really beautiful lush rainforest and you get some of the scale of how much of the land has been turned over for a profit for palm oil to go into different products and so you can think about you know not using toiletries that have palm oils in or maybe choosing different chocolate bars that don't have palm oil in so yeah i think if you can go and empathize em- empathize with different bits of things that you would love about seeing in the world so i really love nature other people might really love going to see ancient monuments and now you know they might be covered in plastic bags so maybe use less plastic bags at home they get blown all over the world so everybody can do something small to make a difference so you're about to embark on your next trip as well can you tell us a little bit about that so far yeah so i'm about to go two good friends i worked with in the maldives i'm such a name dropper for countries sorry (laughs) (laughs) they are getting married in nepal so vicky is nepalese and tilly is from it's a good yorkshire lass so we're flying to nepal to go for their wedding i'm really excited we're getting the henna nights we're getting hopefully i'm gonna get a sari when i get there 
Um, but yeah, really excited to go and see Nepal. I'm hoping to go to one of the national parks to see rhinos. I'm really hoping to try and see tigers um, either in Nepal or Bangladesh or India. I'm going to do a little golden tiger triangle to see if I can spot a tiger, Bengal tiger somewhere. Amazing. So yeah, I'm excited to get back on the road. That's really cool. What are your absolute must-haves that you always pack when you go and traveling? Oh, well, I always take a pack of cards. So when I was younger, we once got really delayed in an airport. And the great thing about cards is they're pretty universal. So you don't need language to play Snap. You know, every country has some kind of card game. I worked on a boat once um, and most of the crew were Filipino and they had a completely different card game than I'd ever played. And we couldn't communicate very well, but I eventually got the hang of this game kind of like a whist, but much faster. So it's a really good way to, you know, if you're stuck in an airport, if you're in a hostel, if you're on a really long train journey somewhere, somebody will want to play cards with you. So always take a pack of cards. Always take a pashmina, generally a patterned one. So if I spill something on it, you can't tell. Great for a blanket on a plane, great for a towel, great for a beach towel, great for a sarong or a headdress. If you're going into a temple, you can use them for everything. Um, I always like a little notebook. So I generally, I'm not very good with names. So I tend to forget where I've been quite quickly. So I like to jot down if I've got like the end of the day, if I've got half an hour, I'll do a little notebook of where I've been. Doesn't have to be like a long, wordy, beautiful travel journal. It's normally just like, went here, smiley face, went here, it rained. Um, <laughs> so just so when I get back, I've got an idea of where I've been and what I liked. And also just like a little first aid kit, Savlon, spray on Savlon and a tiger balm just you know, make everything a little bit better. Use them on mosquito bites, use them for headaches, use them for chub rub chafing if you've been somewhere really humid. <laughs> kind of, they're an all round thing to have. We've got a family tradition as well of always having an adventure hat with you. So this started with my dad. He used to have like a bright yellow kind of baseball hat because he's thinning a bit on top. So he needs, needs a hat when we live in the sunshine. Um, so we used to call it his adventure hat. So now wherever I go, I make sure that I've got an old battered baseball cap with me, not the yellow one. I'm not, I'm not very good in crowds with a bright yellow hat on. So, but it's a family tradition of always having an adventure hat with you on your adventures. What will you miss about home in the UK when you're traveling? Is there any like special food or TV or pub? <sighs> Anywhere you like to go? I mean, being a Northern lass, I do love a Greg sausage roll. Um, they are tricky to get around the world. <laughs> <laughs> things I love. Yeah, there's a lot of things that I do love about the UK now. I really miss the friends that I've made while I've been here. The surf group have been incredible over the last couple of years. I will really miss my baby nephew. He's just coming up seven months and he is just adorable. So I'm hoping for lots of Skype calls with him when he figures out how to answer a Skype call. He's got tiny fingers. Um, he's very cute. But yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, and a nice pint of cider on a hot day. That's one thing I found when I've been traveling is there's always a local beer that's very cheap. But unfortunately, I don't drink beer. I really like a cider and there's not a lot of places that do a cider. They just kind of don't do it in a lot of countries so I always end up buying a more expensive rum at the end of the day which I'm not adverse to but is more expensive than the local beer unfortunately <laughs> that is true and you can't drink quite as much of it without um 
yeah. ahead of the next day. You limit your intake a bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the thing that I always miss the most is like a really good British slice of cake. I mean, obviously, oh, yeah. I talk about cake all the time, to be fair. So that's not hugely surprising. Um, but yeah, like a proper slice of like Victoria's yeah, really sponge, good icing. Like, yeah, like oh, a proper ice yeah. cake. You can't get a really good like iced layer cake around the world to be honest that's when you've places. got to start staying in airbnbs to like bake your own while yeah. you're away but it's just, oh, yeah it's not but the who same can be bothered at the yeah. same time rather than nipping down the road and getting i do like obviously home baking but when you're traveling yeah and there's a lot of places where i think cakes look better than they are or like the, you know big fancy pastries yeah. but actually they don't really taste yeah it's I just think not quite the same cake and oman was never great it was always that like really shiny icing that leaves a film on the inside of your mouth so Mm. that's kind of the cakes we grew up with and so then coming back to the uk and being like oh this is what icing's supposed to be like that's really interesting um yeah pastries as well and also like a really good fish and chips like i don't often eat fish i'm a bit um kind of like eating your work taking your work home with you but yeah chip shop chips just oh Oh, so chip good. shop chips with like the little crunchly, like scrunchly oh, bits. Yeah. Oh yeah, delicious. Gosh. So good. Yeah. Well, I'll have to try and send you some wherever you are in the world in a little care package. Put it in with the sausage roll. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so obviously, you know, you've had such an incredible life so far and you've got these exciting travels and things coming up and, you know, I guess becoming a marine biologist and following something, you know, I often think about when we're back at school and what the careers advisors told us to do, which was like go into quantity surveying or become a journalist or like, I don't remember being told you can be a marine biologist. So, you know, you've obviously kind of followed what, you know, your, your heart was kind of telling you to do and also like what you kind of discovered through your family. So I think that's really amazing. And I guess part of that, I would kind of love to know, you know, what's the best and worst advice you've been given, you know, whether it was, I guess, just along that kind of marine biology journey, if anything stands out. Yeah, I mean, so the career advice I was given when I was in sixth form and we had the career advisor, she was, she hadn't obviously read anything about me in my school folder. So I went in and I was like, I want to be a marine biologist. I want to work in the Middle East. You know, I want to go and look at whale sharks. And she was like, oh dear, you know, there's actually, there's a war on in the Middle East. So I don't think it would be advisable to be there. And I think maybe being a woman and being a marine biologist might be a bit difficult. So I had to then say to her, I actually grew up in the Middle East and I spend most of my time in the water snorkeling and diving and I've seen other people do it and I don't see why I couldn't do it. So your advice isn't really advice. You're just talking rubbish. Um, So I left that thinking, this woman's stupid and I hate her and she's ridiculous. I hate the whole setup. It's ridiculous. Um, Luckily, my biology teacher at the school put me on to some gap year organizations that did marine biology internships. Um, she was really enthusiastic. She was like, nobody ever wants to be a marine biologist at this school. Everybody just wants to be a doctor and it's ridiculous. We can't, you know, people need to do more interesting things with their lives. So she was a really positive influence. I really appreciated her. Um, and I think I've never really been given any like very, I probably have been given a lot of life advice through my parents over the years that I've just assumed I came up with on my own. But one of my better things that I've learned on the road is to always check your dive boots for critters. Um, (laughs) If you live in a tropical country and you leave damp dive boots out, you will end up with something in them the next time you go diving. 
I've had centipedes, I've had cockroaches, I've had a gecko at one point. If you put your foot into a dive boot and there is a gecko in there, you will know about it really quickly. So yeah, just check check your dive boots before you put them on if you're ever on a tropical holiday somewhere. That was the best bit of yeah. best advice, I think. <laughs> just a bit of life experience for you there. I think I'd actually be more grossed out by the centipede and the cockroach than the gecko, but I'm assuming yeah. the gecko tries to bite you, right? Because it just was really wiggly and I was worried that it was going to leave its tail in my boot and I was going to have to oh, then fish out its tail. God. But yeah, I mean, I hate cockroaches and I did scream quite loudly and upset a lot of the guests that were on the boat with me that day who I was going to then be in charge of on our snorkel tour um and the boat captain did look at me like I was a complete lunatic but yeah don't like don't appreciate any kind of critters I mean I even check my boots now before I go diving in the North Sea even though I'm pretty sure nothing wants to be jumping into some cold cold wetsuit boots that have lived in a bucket in my bathroom so you just you just never know you can never be too careful really with these things can you you've just got to be aware of your surroundings you know at all times oh amazing okay it's been so wonderful to speak to you and hear all your incredible stories i think it's really inspiring what you do and yeah i'm really excited to follow you on your next travel journey thank you so much for talking with me yeah thanks so much for having me Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to help other people find us and spread the word to your friends. See you next time.